Welcome to Marketing Thought Leadership, the podcast that offers insightful discussions on thought-provoking marketing topics. Here's the host of our show, marketing consultant, speaker, author, and educator, and the president of L2M Associates, Linda Popke. Hi, this is Linda Popke. Welcome to our latest episode of Marketing Thought Leadership. We're here today with Dave Tabor. And you know, I've known Dave Tabor for too many years. It's, it's almost scary. He's been doing high-tech marketing for 20 years. He's been focused on Salesforce automation and CRM since 2005. His company, Sales Logistics, is a consultancy that's focused on improving marketing and sales effectiveness through the use of Salesforce.com. He's now written a book on best practices that gives guidance for executives and for the worker bees on how to get the most possible leverage out of their Salesforce automation system. So welcome, Dave. Glad to be here. Great. Glad to have you. Today we're going to talk about lead generation. We've got to be able to do better than this. And, man, that's, that's certainly something I'm absolutely in agreement with. I know through the years you have probably seen dozens of lead generation systems and sales funnels. What are the problems with these? What do you see? Well, at the big picture level, uh, and I'm a card-carrying marketing guy, right? Um, I've been a marketing VP. The reality is that we've all been playing a little bit of games with the systems, uh, showing how we can create lots and lots and lots of leads and not really taking accountability for the actual sales funnel that may or may not come as a result. Um, When I first started at one company, for example, I was inheriting a lead gen program that I knew was going to go nowhere. We spent over a million dollars, we generated 3,000 leads, and there was not one dollar of business that came out of that. And that's really, we really do have to be able to do that better than that. Um, and it, this is a combination of a lot of things, some bad habits in sales, some bad habits in marketing, and the lack of reasonable measurements. Um, what I've seen in, in terms of the problems I see over and over again is this problem isn't the lead gen program per se or the SFA system per se. It's really a kind of a disagreement on what's a lead and what's the, what's the kind of a lead that's really going to get us business. And because you disagree on what's a, what's a fully qualified lead and, and what can you really sell to and what can you not, you end up doing some of the wrong things and, of course, measuring the wrong things. Well, so yeah, if there's one thing... You don't know yeah. where you're going to get there, yeah. Yeah, and so what ends up happening is sales has happy years, and they say, oh, I'm going to get a thousand of these things that are ready to close, and marketing says, I'm going to generate 2,000 of these things that I have no idea if there's any interest or not. Well, that's a pretty big difference in semantics. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, so that, that's a, obviously a huge problem. A million dollars, they got 3,000 leads, and, and nothing came out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that out of, out of those 3,000 leads, I think five of them were actually called. And, you know, this is from a sales force that was dying for business. But for whatever reason, they didn't do lead ranking. They didn't believe in the leads. They, you know, because they had seen these people at a web department at a seminar, they said, oh, well, I know that guy's not going to buy anything. They knew no such thing. They just weren't willing to put the time in to really find out where people were at. So, so what can the sales and marketing do to get on the same page about pipeline generation and management? It sounds like that's one of the key problems here. It, it is. Um, the first one, this is kind of laden with politics, but I think it's important. Um, as a sales VP and a marketing VP on the other side, 
most sales VPs seem to hide the comp package pretty effectively from the marketing guys. As a marketing VP, I didn't know what the actual comp plan of each of the sales territories was, so I didn't know where they were going. I had a vague idea, but I didn't really know. And as a result, when I was providing incentives to buy field marketing people and to my product managers, my incentives weren't lined up at so I think one of the most important things is kind of a mind meld at this most basic level. How do you really achieve the, that coherence of here's the pipeline we're really going for, here's the kind of customer, and why? If you have that coherence of objectives and incentives, then you can build a revenue machine rather than a bunch of independent pieces that are kind of flying off in different directions. I mean, Linda, you and I saw this when we were at Sun the guys in marketing were generating stuff that had nothing to do with what the field was actually doing. Absolutely and I've seen right. this way too often at small companies. Yeah, yeah, because you've, you've got people at, at, at diverse objectives, and in marketing our goal was to, to generate a certain number of leads or accomplish something else, but it wasn't necessarily the same goal that the sales force had. Exactly. In fact, one of the, my favorites was uh, we had, uh, when I came back to Sun uh, in around 2000, uh, marketing was measuring itself by how many impressions it was generating right. or by how many downloads they were getting. And there, it, there was a year of marketing between a download or an impression and something that was even the beginning of a sales cycle. So the fact that all of marketing's incentives were way, way, way elevated in the clouds as far as visibility that's not terribly meaningful to a sales cycle. So when I say uh, bringing everyone to sort of a coherent set of measurements, what you want to see is the output of marketing is a set of, whether you call them fully qualified leads or marketing qualified leads or whatever you might call those things, and that there's some sort of function before the end sales rep. Maybe it's field marketing, maybe it's uh, sales development reps, but that's, it's a lead refining function or a lead cultivation function that gets the, the leads really qualified and ready to take a sales call. Marketing can't do that, and you don't want to pay a sales guy to do that either. It takes too much of, of his or her time. So that kind of intermediate function that I call kind of a lead refinery is something that most firms don't have, and it doesn't cost that much, but can make a huge difference to the yield of marketing. Absolutely. And that, that, whether that looks like a telesales operation to you or, or some other function, um, dramatically upping the lead quality before you hand it over to sales is a way of making sure that you really get a good usage of time all the way around. Absolutely. I also heard you know, saying too many organizations are focused on quantity versus quality. And, and yeah. let's see how many impressions we can generate as opposed to let's just get a couple of good quality leads that can turn into business. Yeah, and it's, if, you, if you really take the sales VP off for a beer or two, he'll admit that a, a good sales rep really can't handle more than five new leads per week because he's already got things going on. And if you throw 50 leads at him a week, he's going to cherry pick, and who knows what he's going to do. And he doesn't have a lot of time to kind of pick through the diamonds in the rough. You want to give him diamonds. So... Um, the, given that the, the sales guy is really busy and really isn't a very good lead filter himself or herself, if you can give them something that, that is much, much better, you're feeding them an appropriate pipeline of the right level of, of kind of purification. The other thing you look out for is what time of the quarter is this? 
from week 10 to week 13, if I'm a sales rep and I'm doing anything but closing, I'm out of business. So don't give the, the sales rep a whole bunch of new leads during week 10 through week 13. They're going to be more, and they'll be stale by the time they look at them. So kind of time your leads with the rhythm of sales. Sales guy goes off and you know, has a great quarter, has a crummy quarter, doesn't matter. He's asleep for the first couple of days of the new quarter. He's having his nervous breakdown or his golf game or whatever he's doing. But, boy, you want to make sure that by day three, four, five of the new quarter, he has a whole bunch of new leads that give him something good to work on. And so really make sure that those are ready and then have it taper off after week 10. That gives yeah, you a time to get that's pretty basic because we know the quarters, you know, they come every 13 weeks and we know exactly when the end of the quarter is. And so time the promotions, time the leads, time the whole thing to fit into the Exactly. Snowball. And I can't tell you the number of times that I've seen marketing departments planning really big marketing events in week 10 or 11. The sales reps are going nuts. Yep. And, and, you know, it, it, the rhythm of the quarter is really important that marketing align with the sales rhythm. Right. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Great. So tell me, your business is fixing broken Salesforce automation systems. What do you see that's broken all the time? Well, um, and, and this is not any critique of any SFA system. Um, some are more amusing than others on this, but where you see it all the time is people really haven't done much thinking. They've just slapped an SFA system in there, and it may look like it's working, but it's really not doing much useful. It's got crummy data quality, lots of duplicates, lots of misleading information. Nobody trusts the numbers. The, the classic problems where the field wouldn't dream of running a, their forecast off of the system because they just don't believe in it. So um, there, there's too many things that have just been kind of bad guesses put in the system rather than kind of really planning. And um, it's ironic, in, in my business, we actually want people to do it themselves when they first bring up the Salesforce systems. Oh, Salesforce.com is so easy to use. I can do this myself. And after about a year, they'll discover that they've been shooting their, themselves in the foot quite a bit, and then I have some pain to sell into. I realize this is kind of you know, not very nice of me. It's kind of you know, gallows humor. But um, when you're a salesperson, you want to sell into pain. And so we want to make sure that someone has caused themselves sufficient pain by not being careful early on. So the kinds of things we see just all the time, that the people, the actual users hate the system. The reason why they hate it is the data quality stinks, and it, the system doesn't really do them any good in their day-to-day -day job. It's just like a tax on what they really need to be doing. Right, but so so, it sounds like a, a lot of organizations say, we'll let the sales reps enter the data themselves. And it's not a matter of how easy it is or isn't to enter the data, but is there a better way to get this set up and, and let the sales reps sell and let someone else set the system up? Well, the, in, first off, doing a little bit of thinking and having, having someone who has been there before does make a big difference. But I'm not here to sell you know, my, my services in this part of the call. Um, I, what I think can make a big difference is initially give the uh, sales reps a really, really on, easy on-ramp. And one of the things we actually recommend is that temporarily, for the first quarter or so, you remove all excuses by hiring a temp to actually do all the data entry for all the field. That makes so that sense. the sales rep, yeah. And how much is it going to cost you? Twenty bucks an hour, thirty bucks an hour to make a whole sales rep set of excuses go away? 
this is great. They feel coddled. They feel, hey, I'm being treated as, a, as something special, and the system is there to help me. Yep. The system is not there to be a spy on me. And that's a really common fear, perhaps justified in a lot of sales forces. Right. Wow. That makes sense. So from a marketing perspective, what should marketing do to up their game, so to speak, when it comes to Salesforce automation systems? Because from a marketing, you know, we're both marketing people at, at heart. Um, we'd like to be, become heroes in this. So how can we kind of help and not be the, uh, the scapegoats but be more of the <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, this sounds like a, a Pollyanna, but produce the things that will actually make a difference to real sales cycles. Now, that's a long-term goal. In the short term, what you can do is use the Salesforce measurements to discover things that actually are counterproductive to closing. If you can discover that, hey, sales reps, if this is a 20K deal or less, do not propose a proof concept because that will make it worse for your probability of close. Where they may have, been, they may have trained themselves, always do a POC because of the 100K deals. You may discover that for 100K deals it is essential, but below 20 it's an impediment. And if you can make that kind of discovery by doing some deal analysis, that's a really big help. And by that, what you need to do is work backwards from the deals that closed and work backwards from the ones that everyone thought were going to close but didn't and figure out what are the patterns that you can find. So that's a, 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 obviously a very analytical task, but you can do that in a quarter or so, uh, looking back at real deals. The other one that the sales force will thank you for, and so will your own PR department, cultivate references and record as much of the interesting gee whiz stories in the Salesforce automation system. That's a great idea. Yeah. One of the things that I did when I first came on at one company was I hired a, uh, an SE that was just about out the door. A sales engineer was burned out. He'd been abused by the sales force, but he loved the company and he loved the product. So what I had this person do was call around to every single customer we'd ever had, some of whom he knew anyway, and just say, hey, what are you doing? And he just asked a few questions of every one of them. And he was able to get through to about 80% of them within 90 days. Wow. We then had 500 cute little stories. And you could just search and say, hey, tell me about who, someone who's used this product with Oracle. Tell me about someone who has more than 100 seats. And you could just run, run right through the system. And the Salesforce had a huge tool they'd never had before. Meanwhile, the PR department was going nuts. Cause oh, now sure. they, had, they were in heaven, yeah. Yeah, and it didn't cost that much. But it's because what we did was we just said, we, want, we marketing want to know more about the customer than anybody else in the company. Right. And as a marketing VP, at the end of one quarter, I could actually go toe-to-toe with a sales rep throwing cards on the table at the, at the executive staff meeting saying, hey, yeah, you heard that at that customer, but I got three other customers that did it this way. And that's wow. hugely important to the VP's credibility. You and marketing need to own something, and references are a great thing to own. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Well, that's helpful. So let me tell you, ask you this. Is, is there a deadly mistake that marketing should avoid when working with a Salesforce automation system? And I have to tell you, I've, you know, I've, I've started to implement Salesforce.com for my own business, and it's got a great amount of, of 
functionality and capability, but sometimes it can be overwhelming. So as a marketing person, what do you want to avoid to kind of stay out of that, uh, you know, kind of Bermuda Triangle, so to speak, of where everything gets lost and you're not sure what you did wrong? Yeah. So there's a small answer to this and a big career answer to this. Okay. So let me give you the small, easy answer. Don't ask for too much. Do yep. everything you can to streamline the system. Remove fields. Hide them. There are, there are some In Salesforce.com in particular, there are lots of great ways to make it so that marketing sees a very complicated picture. It's great for analysis. But sales guys see a very simple picture. Where, sales, where marketing guys tend to make a lot of mistakes is asking for too many fields on the registration form for leads. Uh. Realistically, oh boy, for most markets, if you get five fields, it's a miracle. And a lot of people really don't want to tell you their title, and they right. really don't want to tell you their purchase intent. It's none of your business. Thank you very much. And even if they so, do, they, you'd have no idea whether they're making it up or it's real data. Yeah. Exactly. Very rarely is it going to be real data anyway. So don't ask for things where if someone – just you know, get intuitive. If you went to a website and they asked you these questions, would you give a good answer? I mean, come on. And the best way – Yeah, exactly. The best way to test this is do two versions of your registration page, one with, let's say, three fields and one with five, and measure the difference and have it be a round robin so you get a random sample of registrants uh, and find out. Do you get better data quality as well as more leads per click with three fields, or does the data quality hold up at five? Unfortunately, what I've found is most of the time, three fields is all you should really expect. Right. And then on the inward-looking side of this, don't ask the sales guys to fill out 75 fields about the configuration of the, of the customer, who the competition is, the win-loss reason. They are not going to fill it out. Don't kid yourself you'll just come across as a pain in the neck. Right, right. Find that out some other way. Yep. Pay the SE, if you have a sales engineer, pay the SE 50 bucks to fill that out. Right. But don't ask the sales rep. You know, yep. I'm, I'm serious about this 50 bucks. If the data's worth that much to you, yeah, an find SE another will, way to get it, sure. Yeah, and the SE does. There's no good reason for them to fill it out, right? Yep. You give them a good reason like dinner, they'll fill it out. Oh, but now idea. let's get to the career one. I've, been, I've seen people get trapped in this one, and I've also seen people jump on this voluntarily, and it's a hand grenade. Do not try to put extra measurements on the field or on uh, the telesales organization. This is in disguise of, oh, we want to measure the time to first touch between when a lead comes in and when it's in the system versus when someone calls back. Or maybe in the form of how many leads fell on the floor and weren't attended to by the, uh, by the sales rep. Right. You are asking. You are playing policeman. It's none of your business. That's for sales management to measure, not for marketing management, and you're just painting a big old target on your chest. Right, right. And certainly if, if, uh, if, if things aren't happening, sales management should be sitting on the sales reps and saying, what are you doing, what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. if the sales VP asks you, hey, can you run this report, but don't show anybody, of course run that report. But don't go running around you know, on a witch hunt. Right, right. Again, it, it sets marketing up on one side, sales on the other, and being opposing forces as opposed to being on the same team. Absolutely. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about measurements, and, and we're hearing so much about metrics and ROA for marketing and 
In fact, we had Jim Lenskold, who wrote the book on marketing ROI, was a guest not too long ago on on, uh, on this show. So, but but we hear a lot about these measurements. But there's so many measurements out there. Like you mentioned, there's some things that could be invented that just are not necessary. So, what do you think are the are the right measurements that executives should be looking for? Well, there's uh, th- there are a lot of measurements, and, and what I try to look for are measurements that look beyond marketing. Because if you think, just take your marketing hat off for a moment, who's responsible for the brand in company? Sure, marketing is responsible for some of it, but so is customer support. So is the CEO. So is the PR department, which may not be part of directly under marketing's control. So if that's true of branding, it's also true of, of other important metrics. I try to look at two big picture things and try to get other departments to cooperate and to actually participate in these measurements. The first is the cost of customer acquisition. What's the really complete cost from someone who never heard of us all the way to acquiring them as a closed customer? That includes cost of pre-sales, the sales commission, your partner program if you have one, your outside marketing agencies, all those things and it's a big number, and it's scary. But with you, if you think of it that way, you're thinking as if you're the CEO. You're saying, I've got a revenue engine. What does it cost me to produce this new revenue source? And if you get a lot of departments to really, you know, two or three departments to participate in this, you'll be measuring the right big picture things. Right, right. So of which marketing might be 50% of the total cost of customer acquisition. But sales is a big chunk of that as well. Absolutely. The other half is what's the cost of cu- or what's the value of a new customer over their lifetime? Right. Customer the customer lifetime, lifetime customer value, value again includes marketing, sales, customer support, even engineering. Yep. And those two numbers are what mean company profitability. And if you can show the company the way to look at both of those systematically, you'll be kind of leading the charge towards big picture thinking rather than my department's doing the right thing, your department didn't do the right thing, that sort of squabbling doesn't really get you very far. Now, along the way, the things that you can measure marketing on are things like what's the cost of generating a new sales call? So uh, you, you in marketing aren't really responsible for whether the deal closes or not, but you can be responsible for how many sales cycles started this quarter. Right. And how much of that was new business versus repeat business? Customer loyalty programs are hugely profitable, and those can be squarely in marketing's uh, uh, bailiwick. You could do competitive upgrades, you do side grades, you do all kinds of things to get people to buy more of your product. Those programs are pretty easy to measure, and they can be very profitable. Great. I'd Good. rather see that than how many leads. Well, that's a, how many leads, I, you know, and, and again, having, I, I think you and I are both kind of on the same page on this, but having been there on the marketing side, we see so many times that people want to measure what's easy to measure. And if I can just turn them through the machine and I can generate lots and lots and lots of leads, that's the right answer. And that's easy to measure, but it's not the right thing to measure. In fact, sometimes you don't want a lot of leads. You just want, give me two or three qualified leads. That's it. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and if you think of, uh, I don't know if you've ever worked with by appointment only, but they're a firm that generates sales appointments. That's their mm-hmm. whole thesis, that they just say, you don't need a marketing department, just generate some, someone who wants to take a sales call. Right. And I'm not saying that that's a perfect model for any customer, but if you think of it that way, that the output of marketing and, and sort of the sales development rep 
is someone who wants to take a direct sales guy's call or someone who's ready to do business on e-commerce, that's, that's a great way of looking at this as a revenue process Good. and measuring yourself of the cost of a new sales call. Yep, that's, that's a good way to look at it. Excellent. So, Dave, tell us a little bit about the book. You've got the new book. It's out on, um, it's on Amazon as well as available through your website. It's called Salesforce.com, Secrets of Success, Best Practices for Growth and Profitability. Who's the target audience for the book? Who's the right person to read this book? Well, um, there's, what I tried to do was a best practices book, first of all, for executives who are trying to figure out what the heck do I do with this system. So okay. I have a chapter for a sales VP, a marketing VP, customer support, the CFO, the IT director. And then I also have eight other chapters for the teams who are actually implementing this thing. Um, so this is really focused in, on someone who has decided on Salesforce.com, but a dirty little secret 80% of this content applies to any SFA system. Ah, okay. Yeah. To get a book published these days, you have to show a publisher a mass audience. And Salesforce has a million users and 55,000 customers. That's a mass audience. And I did t target title and the content for them. But I'll tell you, an awful lot of these best practices would apply to any modern CRM system. Um, now, no, you don't have to be a Salesforce user to really get a lot out of this book. Yeah, because um, when I looked around at the CRM books, they were either really abstract or they were the dummies guides that didn't tell you what's the right thing to do when. Right. They would only tell you how, how, how. Yep. Yes, no, that's so right. um, if you don't know anything about uh, any SFA system, this wouldn't be a great introductory book. I don't want to mislead people. This is for people who are pretty serious. Um, it's, uh, it turned out to be, my contract was 350 pages. I actually ended up writing more than that because I didn't realize how much I had to say. <laughs> Overachieved. But, yes. Yeah. Um, but uh, you're, uh, pound for pound, you're getting uh, uh, a lot. I think it's 24 bucks on Amazon right now, and Kindle is 16 bucks. Wow. That's great. Terrific. Okay. Well, thank you, Dave. We appreciate your time. It's been wonderful to have you here. We've been talking with Dave Tabor. He is the CEO of saleslogistics.com. You can reach him at www.saleslogistics, spelled L-O-G-I-S-T-I-X.com. And if you'd like to find out more about the book, which is called Salesforce.com, Secrets of Success, Best Practices for Growth and Profitability, you can go to the website, www.sfdc secrets.com or you can go right to Amazon and get it there. So thank you, Dave. It's been a pleasure. And thank I really you. appreciate it. Okay. All right, take it easy. This is Linda Popke saying uh, so long until next time. Thank you very much for listening to Marketing Thought Leadership. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Marketing Thought Leadership, brought to you by L2M Associates. If you'd like to find out how you can improve the return on your investment in marketing programs, processes, or people, contact us at www.l2massociates.com.